You are tuned to WPKN in Bridgeport, 89.5 FM, and streaming online at WPKN.org. Stay tuned for the Organic Farm Stand, coming up right now. there to start off our show today. Guy, did you, did you hear that? Yeah, right. That's our organic love. That's Howard Tate, by the way, great soul singer from the 1970s. And uh, that's usually our outro theme, but uh, I stuck it in the, as an intro this time. So, uh, Guy Beardsley, you are yes, joining indeed, us. Yes, sir. Oh, man, it's, uh, it's always great to have you. So here we are uh, on the organic farm stand, which comes to us uh, here uh, the first and third Thursday of the month. We are in April. I believe uh, this would be called the Ides of April, the 15th of April. and Otherwise uh, known as Tax Day if oh, in past years. Yeah. Did they move, did they move that to May? Just, I'm just, they have. They have. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. that's a relief because I have not done my taxes. <laughs> I I played with it and I finally gave it gave it over to the uh, the accountant. Ah uh, yes, that, always a good move. Get it out. Just not have that heavy weight on your shoulders. Okay, Chris Ferrio has arrived. So good show. Let's see what we got here for Chris. He's on number three. All right. Three. You got me. Uh yes, I got you. Okay, so Chris is on. What's up, guy? <laughs> well, here we are. I'm, I'm play, I am uh, actually. I started the stove, at, uh, because it uh, got. Uh, I said the, the temperature is not that bad, but it got a little, a little chilly because of the, uh, the rain. And so uh, I said, "Well, come on, let's. We uh, we got plenty of wood here." And so I started the stove. You're talking about the wood burning stove. Yeah. Right. Nice. Do you have Do you have another backup system in in your house? Oh yeah. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Right, yeah. Uh, although, I tell you what, that stove makes a great companion. It absolutely does. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm telling you, I have this huge fireplace, and um, for years now, five or so, I've been trying to uh, figure out how to get more heat out of that thing because... Oh, fireplace is so inefficient. I know. Uh, you so. could uh, get a stove insert, and that might be better. But uh, I don't know if, if the fireplace is it is pretty good. Uh, to, you know that it, that's a great companion too. Yeah, it is. But it's just it, uh, you know I I feel like if I'm three feet away from it, I'm I'm like I'm I'm, I'm you a know good. what, uh, Richard? We got uh, of course in the house here. We got five fireplaces, <laughs> and uh, every single one of them. Once you start a fire in there, those. Those bricks are so because the house is uh, was built in 1749, and uh, all those fireplaces have had fires in them for so many years that the uh, the heat of the fire heats up those bricks almost immediately. And this is something which uh, you might not know, but uh, if you've got a new house and they have a a new fireplace in it, obviously, then uh, it would take a little while for those bricks to heat up. But uh, when you've got the, the bricks that have been heated up for years, and uh, they pick it up real fast, and it doesn't take hardly maybe three or four minutes, and uh, you've got a very nice uh, heated 
fireplace, and uh, of course, to the point where you have to kind of settle back on it. Uh, we have to have a fire screen on those fireplaces also, because when you're burning uh, the pine, which you shouldn't burn much of, or hickory, which you get the 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 uh, uh, the, the outside part of the hickory. Uh, Will uh, will spit and pop some to oh, yeah. the point where you gotta have those fireplace uh, screens. Yeah, yeah, we're 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 sworn never to burn pine, but you know what? I gotta say, uh, somebody, a friend of mine, gave me a tip that you can use pine cones, not not all, but white pine. So so if you have a white pine tree, the the, po- the pine cones that they drop. Are uh, fabulous fire starters. They're oh, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you use those, guy? No, I, I, I've got. Uh, we've got all kinds of pine cones, but uh, I. What I do is, uh, in we got a big woodshed, and when you're splitting the wood, you have all kinds of pieces of wood and bark that uh, is around there. So we always place that up and put it in a separate basket so that uh, we have it always available, and that's what I use as a fire starter. That's cool, yeah. Well, these, I gotta say, uh, even just for the thrill, if you like uh, like a very, very low-octane low fireworks kind of thing, yeah. put, put a match to one of those uh, pine cones from a yeah, white... Yeah, that's right. They are, I have used them, <laughs> yes, I definitely have. They burst that's into good. flame, and they... Yeah. Um, they're kind of like I don't know if anybody, anybody's heard of this stuff called fat wood, F A T. Oh yeah, they um they sell it for uh, starting fires. Yeah, like campfires and, and stuff. Yes, exactly, and uh, so it's pretty expensive, but uh, it you know it's good and it sustains. Um, you know you can use less kindling and to get your your fire going, but the um, the the pine cones are equal, if not. Surpassing yeah, they are, they are the fat wood, yeah, yeah, and you can start them with a match too. That's true. Yep. Yeah, don't right. need. I, although I usually use a little newspaper to uh, to create the 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 heat that's necessary to to get all that tinder going, right? Yes, uh, often necessary. Well, um, I I'm going to uh, try to get a fireplace consultant to take a look at my thing because uh, you know th- there's. Um, Definitely, uh, we're losing a lot of uh, energy going up up that chimney. Make sure, make sure you use fire bricks in the in the fireplace. That uh, <laughs> I had a uh, a nephew by marriage who uh, decided that he was going to take a shortcut and use regular bricks for the fireplace, <laughs> but he set his house on fire by <laughs> doing that. Is that right? Oh my yeah. God! Yeah, well, it wasn't a laughing matter, but but uh, everybody told him, "Don't do it! Don't do it! You go get fire bricks." No, I'm going to save money. Well, <laughs> well, he didn't save money in the end at all. Yeah, regular fireplaces, pretty much um, from my my experience, they just like suck all the all the heat out of the house. Yeah, well, you know? they, uh, and you you got to have a, good, a pretty good damper, which we have in ours. Yeah, yeah it, it, and, and it's a big, big swing gate that uh, you push up against the edge of the swimming. I'm talking about the old fireplaces that we had in the house for years. But in the winter time, you kept the fire going at all times. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So I you know, didn't have to shut it down. I know, like as my... long as you had a fireplace in there, you had heat. But yeah. uh, if you let it wait, let it die down or go out. And uh, you had to close down the damper because it will lose, you'd lose the heat in the house in no time at all. Yeah, actually, my brother converted to gas, and uh, it's so much more efficient, and it's <laughs> enclosed, and they don't, you know, it used to be like their their den was like so cold, even with the fire going, you know, but now it's now it's great. Well, you we know. always said you get warm yourself twice with a, with a wood uh, burning uh, uh, stove or fireplace. Who wants to get it uh, ready to burn and then when it's burning, right? It's <laughs> yep. splitting the wood, uh, sawing the wood, whatever <laughs> it is, right? That'll warm you up. So, Guy, before we get into the, the small farms report, we've been doing a little bit of folk <laughs> folk farm here, talk here just to get the show going. But um, I want to mention uh, that our special guests coming up at uh, around 1230 today. Interesting uh, couple from Hamden and New Haven. 
that would be Eliza Caldwell and her partner, Adam Matlock. Uh, and um, they're going to be talking to us about something called Food Forests, which was something I had not uh, heard of before. Nor have I. Yeah, so we're going to hear about that. It's uh, it's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, I guess he, he combines a lot of the concepts that we've talked about. So it's def- definitely the idea of uh creating a sustainable um, no-till or very little-till situation. And it is apparently, I think it's applicable to very small yards and spaces along, as well as uh, larger commercial ones. Uh, But um, uh, Eliza is the community gardens manager for the organization called Gather New Haven. And Adam Matlock is the town of... Thousand, uh, town of a Thousand Gardens project in Hamden. So, wow. in addition to uh, the kind of theoretical stuff they're going to be talking about, we we can find out about their own uh, special projects and specialties there. That so that coming up at twelve thirty today. Turning back to Guy Beardsley, Guy, I I know one of the things they're going to be talking about is you know how to sort of get a perennial food supply going on your property. And uh, as you know, I, I favor fruit shrubs. And uh, so I didn't prepare you for this, but it might be interesting to get to talk about some of the things that are available and sort of native uh, to our region so that, um, you know, people who want to try to get this constant, you know, year by year turnover of food coming from those plants. Uh, could do that. And so we've talked about it before, but um, if you have anything, any specialized information you want to share with us today, that would be great. But go go forward with your uh, report on, um, you know, the basic uh, lay of the land out there in Shelton. Okay, we'd be glad to do that. That's a, uh, it being the sort of day it is, uh, it's nice to be inside. I don't have a whole lot. The greenhouse is doing famously uh, Janelle has done a really good work because she, she was off from her school last week, and so she's got about, I guess, somewhere around 80 or 90 uh, trays going in the greenhouse now. And uh, we have to make sure that uh, those are trays that have uh, plastic, uh, clear plastic covers on them. And so in order to, uh, to keep them work, uh, working well in, a, in weather like this, we have to put them on mats, and uh, they've got some pretty decent mats out now, uh, some almost throwaway mats that uh, you unroll these things to about eight feet, and uh, you plug them into one of our plugs, and uh, it has an automatic thermostat on them, so they'll heat it up to uh, a good uh, temperature, and uh, if the sun comes in, why they'll shut themselves off just to maintain that temperature. That's uh, pretty good. Uh, the uh, used to have these uh, mats, which were, you could put about three trays on them. They were rubberized, and they were inside a, a wire uh, case that uh, you could uh, <clears throat> move around pretty easily. But they were sort of heavy, and uh, uh, they seemed to, when, when you, if you overwatered or if you've got some water on them, you had to be very careful uh, because some of those uh, places uh, it would might short out, and you always had to be careful when you when you did water. Anyway, <clears throat> so so be it. When the uh, trays get bigger, when the plants get bigger in those trays, you have to either uh, raise up the lids or not use the lids at all, and just uh, every night we will cover it with a double layer of uh, row cover and just uh, have it so that it's one end of the row, and we just roll it out on top of the plants. And so uh, the plants will, uh, if it, as long as you've got a double layer of row cover and you, you just use uh, that single double layer uh, over everything, uh, that uh, that does a job, or it seems it's always done the job for us. We've never had in the greenhouse any particular problem. And so <clears throat> the greenhouse is great because it just knocks there's no wind, and uh, that's uh, one of the big problems, particularly when you get lower temperatures, that wind 
uh, has a tendency to you know, lo- lower the temperature. And even though it's a, on, uh, on us, it, it also definitely does affect, affect the plants. Anyway, so this is just a note on the greenhouse. The garlic uh, is doing famously, and I'm sure Vincent Price will have a, Vincent, uh, <laughs> Vincent will, will have a, a good story on that. And uh, so, we, it, but I, I'm having to uh, already cultivate it, and, uh, and we're side dressing it now. I, I put the gar- when I plant the garlic, I put the fertilizer underneath the bulb we plant, and then cover that up, uh, usually with uh, compost. And that seems to work well. I know most people use the leaves or uh, or maybe uh, straw type uh, cover, but uh, I usually just put through throw compost on it. I've never had any problem with the with the garlic growing in that. Uh, I was looking at uh, the other day some of the uh, onions which I planted last fall. And uh, some of them have come up. They all don't come up, but uh, some of them do. And so we're going to have early onions. That's, that's good. And if you want to, you pull off some of the onion stalks and uh, just don't, don't pull them all off from one plant. And uh, so you have some really nice greens early on. And uh, although I didn't have any this past year, uh, some of the kale uh, at this time of the year it's got small little leaves coming off of the stubs of the stalks, and uh, they are just remarkably great. You just go snap one off and pop it in your mouth, and it's sweet and crunchy, and uh, you got, I don't think you can beat any, any greens other than those really young uh, little stubs uh, coming off the stalks if, you've, if they've overwintered. But anyway, so be that. Now, the lavender is done pretty well, although we did have some winter loss. Uh, and uh, and I couldn't tell you right now which lavender uh, is good uh, because one type, and I can never c- continue to remember it, uh, seems to stand the winter much better. Uh, <clears throat> we And I should make some comment on the lavender because uh, <clears throat> there's French lavender and there's English lavender. And the English lavender is the lavender which gives you a chance to relax and rest and so forth. But the French lavender has got camphor in it, and it's sort of a stimulant. And so, uh, if, uh, if, and I think they call the English lavender lavender, and they call the French lavender something else. It sounds a little bit like lavender, but it's kind of like lavendine or something like that. Uh, so just keep in mind that if you want to have a nice relaxing lavender, you want English lavender. If you want to have some stimulant-type lavender, go get the French lavender. Anyway, that's a small matter. <clears throat> and so we'll be replacing, even though we expect to get about 10% of the loss of lavender after every winter. And so uh, my son-in-law, Ed, who you've, you've heard on the station uh, talk about his lavender, he talks about it with a great deal of, uh, of emphasis and interest, and uh, it is, uh, it's, almost a, <clears throat> it's almost a part, it is a part of what he does, and uh, he really lives lavender. Right. And he, he actually gives some classes on it, too. And we did that uh, about oh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, <clears throat> nevertheless, uh, here we go. Uh, now, <clears throat> the, it's, it's, this is exactly the time of the year which you want to look at your peach trees. And uh, you can see at this point which, ones, which one of those little leaves or one of those little blossoms or little stubs are, are going to be uh, peaches and which are going to be leaves. And so you can uh, prune them to the point where you can reduce the number of uh, potential fruit blossoms to not more than about uh, eight or nine or ten per branch. You won't get all of them uh, to be exactly what you want, but that gives you enough uh, latitude so that you can trim them off and uh, trim the, or prune the plant off to the point where you uh, will eventually get about three or four peaches per branch. That is, uh, the small branches. That, 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 and so that, uh, that way uh, you get your best peaches in and, uh, and both uh, size and, uh, 
and taste. So, uh, so much for peaches. Uh, blueberries uh, definitely have uh, already been uh, looked at and uh, scratched around. And uh, we've re- we use a special blueberry booster, which we get out of uh, Maine. Uh, it's, a, it's a more reasonable product. You don't have to make your own. And you just uh, put this blueberry booster on there. But you do have to scratch it in. Uh, one year, we, uh, we put it down and we didn't scratch it in. And the next year, when we scratched it in, it all was sitting there at one time. Now, the blueberries seem to absorb considerable, but uh, if you scratch that in, and also we like to put some sort of a, say, a, a wood chip cover on it or some sort of a cover uh, on, the, on the, over top of that uh, um, fertilizer so that the blueberries will grow uh, without a whole lot of weeds right around them. Uh, so, Guy, is this the time to be doing the booster? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Yeah, you want to, you know, once uh, once they uh, blossom out, we uh, we just leave them alone. So now is the time to definitely get that get that blueberry booster in. Have you still got some, Richard? Yeah. So I well, I have a little bit of yours, and I have I picked up a, uh, one up at uh, Nature Works. I think. Oh, good. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it's an organic one. It's it's uh, you know, I I expect it's probably not quite as uh, atomic uh, or you know. As, you, as the one you gave me, but uh, I think, uh, yeah, I've, I used it recently, but I, the idea of, uh, yeah, digging it in a bit, I think that's uh, that's critical, and, uh, and then that's a new one to me to cover it after you've done that. I think that that might be good because, of course, you know, it's sitting on the surface. It could be get washed away or even blown away in, uh, in the wind. <laughs> right. So um, yeah, that's, that's good. good. Uh, how many uh, blueberry stalks do you leave in one plant? Well, I I just uh, I got I was late. I asked you about this last show. I said, is it too late for me to trim my blueberries and and uh, other fruits? I have I have a currant bush too. And you said, oh my God, you should have done it in February. So <laughs> I I said I went out there and I looked at it at the at the bushes, and uh, I did see. Some had already started to bud a little bit, so I didn't mess with those, except unless they were really long, stringy ones sticking way up. You know, I figured. Yeah, get those out of there, the long, thin ones, because they're not going to do any good except just absorb some of the nutrients that you want to go into the good stalks. Yeah. yeah. So right. I, cu- I cut away the, the dry ones, the ones that were sure. looked dead, and I trimmed down the, the stringy ones. and. So um, they're looking pretty good. They're budding out, and um, I didn't do well last year with, I have four bushes. I did, uh, I think, okay with one of them, and the rest were pretty uh, pretty uh, underperforming. So um, I'm going to, I, I'm hoping for, for, for the best this year. I think it's going to be better because of the budding that I'm seeing. And, of course, we have to get our bird netting in, in lined up for those. Yeah, you got to protect them. Uh, the, the birds, especially the robins, are terrible on blueberries. <laughs> they they look like, you know, uh, those birds can get drunk on blueberries. <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember when we had this blueberry netting out and so forth. But uh, some of the birds got uh, under it, or I don't know how. Some of me, I think one of them even pecked a hole in it. <laughs> In the, the the netting is amazing, but they got in there, and when they got in there, they couldn't get out. So the only thing they were doing was eating blueberries <laughs> to the point where they they uh, apparently when that blueberry gets inside the bird, it starts to ferment or whatever it does. Anyway, it must must create some alcohol, and so <laughs> they, they anyway they were you could tell that they weren't. They, they couldn't fly. They were kind of <laughs> wobbling around on the ground. It was amazing. But anyway, um, so guy, <laughs> yeah, can I can I ask you? Since uh, actually, I'm I'm going to be moving in this direction myself, and I I know our our guests coming up will, may talk about fruit shrubs as well. Compare soil type and and, and uh, pH needed uh, for blueberries uh, as opposed to red raspberries as opposed yeah. to. As opposed okay, to well, blueberries generally want a much more acidic soil. 
Now, I've got to say this, though. We have two blueberry bushes that my father planted now. It's been over 50 years ago. They're right in the middle of Janelle's garden, and the pH is about 6.5 and so forth. Those blueberry bushes are doing famously with that pH. But if you're going to set blueberries out, you want to have them with the low pH. We always use a slurry of uh, peat moss and water in the front loader of the tractor. So, uh, And then when we dig the hole for the blueberry bushes, uh, we just use the slurry, to, and that's what we plant in, this blueberry slurry, uh, which is uh, just peat moss and water. And uh, that's got a low enough pH so that we've never had a, blueberry, a, a, a small bush problem using that to start with. So, they, But when you, that blueberry booster that we were talking about, it's got a low pH because it's got sulfur in it. And uh, it's got uh, several other things which uh, are not going to provide a whole lot of of a, of, a, of, a, of a lime factor, which would raise the pH. So we want to keep the pH pretty low, and uh, that way you won't have any any difficulties. So that's a good thing. But as opposed to the asparagus, which I changed, asparagus likes a high pH. As a matter of fact, they like a higher pH than almost any other of the crops that we grow. They recommend a pH of over 7, which makes it very uh, alkaline. And so, uh, anyway, so that's what asparagus... And I, I finally found out why I, one year I, I, I gave my blueberry, I gave my asparagus a big problem uh, because I put some compost on it. Then that compost was a much higher pH than, uh, than normal. And I don't know just why that was, but uh, I found it after I put it on. Uh, the next year I did the soil test, and the soil was uh, was down around 6.2 or 6.3, and so the asparagus did not do well on that. So they want a high pH, and so there's plenty of things that you can get to improve pH. We just throw wood ashes on it, uh, but, and, but you have to be very careful on that because that can raise the pH too fast, too quickly. So just a little bit uh, goes, a, goes a long way on, on raising the pH with wood ashes. I mean, that is wood ashes from deciduous wood, not, uh, not uh, coniferous. Okay, so... Uh, okay, Guy, before I, we get off this topic, though, t- t- compare uh, what, what do red raspberries and... Okay, they, uh, they, they, they'll, they'll go a regular 6.4 to 6.8, something like that. The, red, the raspberries and the blackberries all like a, a good pH on it. The same pH that you'd use for... Uh, for your for for, for uh, the, the vegetables, which is you know wants to be a six five to six eight is the optimum. Some will grow much better than others on a, a, a but try to keep the pH within the six to seven range, and uh, I think you'll be okay. Although they much better, they look better. Go six three to six eight is uh, is the best normal range for almost everything else to include strawberries and raspberries and blackberries and so forth. So basically mo- most berries are, are need a high pH. Is that what you're saying, Guy? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, Richard's trying to, Richard's getting our guests on the phone. Um, so I wanted to ask you the uh, growing mats. Uh, do you know what temperature they go at to uh yeah the, the the ideal temperature and if you have a soil thermometer that uh, is uh, identifies the temperatures on it the oh, growth the optimum growing is in, is in the 70s oh. 70s to maybe 80 uh, the, the green the little green section runs from about 75 to about uh, 90 uh, 90, I think, is a little high, but uh, so you know they, things will grow. But uh, once they get over 90, they uh, they're going to start to. That's too hot. And I think it's uh, we we try to keep it between 75 and 85. That's uh, our most ideal conditions. We think for for uh, for uh, allowing the nutrients to be absorbed by the plants, uh, the little roots. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, I got to tell you that we got our two guests lined up and ready to roll on the phone. And uh, let me just check in with them. Eliza and Adam, are you with us? Yes. 
Yeah. Wow. Excellent fidelity. Excellent. Yeah, that sounds really good. Great. You'll have to t- offline. You'll have to tell us what kind of cell phone you're using. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, so what we uh, what we are going to do now is to talk to Eliza Caldwell and Adam Matlock about joint uh, projects that they're running in New Haven and Hamden, and also in their own gardens uh, in Hamden. And the basic rubric under which uh, I guess we're going to have this conversation is a word that neither Guy nor I had encountered before, which is food forests. And in the overarching discussion about racial and environmental justice and how that relates to food availability and, uh, and the whole question of sustainability. So Eliza and uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the Organic Farm Stand. Thank you for having us on. Much appreciated. Great. Great to have you. So um, just to mention again, Eliza is the community gardens manager for the organization called uh, Gather New Haven. And we'll hear a little bit about that. And Adam Matlock, who is also a musician, he teaches at the Neighborhood Music School in New Haven. And uh, being a musician myself, um, I used to work right across the street at Educational Center for the Arts. So um, if you want to pop in a, a little word or two about what kind of music you play and how you get that into, sure. the, into the bodies and brains of young people. That would be interesting. But um, Adam yeah. is also the, uh, the uh, I guess, the kind of originator or manager of Town of a Thousand Gardens, which is a project in Hamden, Connecticut. So let's see, where to begin? Why don't, um, Eliza, why don't you tell us a little bit about your role with the, as community gardens manager and then also... Uh, begin to introduce introduce us to this concept of food forests as part of the whole push for racial and environmental justice. Yeah, so um, Gather New Haven is the merged organization of the New Haven Land Trust and New Haven Farms. Um, And we have about 50 community gardens throughout New Haven. Um, And they're all managed by the coordinators and gardeners themselves. And I sort of just make sure everybody has what they need um, on like a larger scale. Uh, But the gardeners really are the ones doing the gardening there. Um, So that's my role at work. And then at home, we're uh, doing our own gardening in our yard big time. Yeah, we're, we're working on a mini food forest. Um, which is, uh, you know, of course, a lot of people got into uh, the idea of doing kind of victory garden type things when the pandemic hit last year, you know, uh, a little over a year ago. And uh, it has been a source of uh, just a great way to kind of get to know our neighbors a little bit better since people are walking around our neighborhood a lot. And there's always something to see, (laughs) uh, whether, you know, you're just walking by or whether you are like us, you know, out in the yard multiple times a day, just kind of looking for activity, um, whether it's insects or whether it's things growing. Um, And uh, yeah, there's always, you know, there's a lot to, lot to see and a lot to do. Um, uh, But yeah, the idea of a food forest is, you know, is uh, sort of comes from permaculture. Um, but it is, you know, kind of a, you know, uses a lot of those same ideas, but it is kind of a separate thing. Um, and we, you know, we have a book from uh, Martin Crawford, um, who is a, an English uh, kind of agriculturalist um, who uh, really, uh, you know, I mean, it's a massive book, um, a really excellent work um, about the concept of food forests and, uh, and this idea, yeah, of using perennials and, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of fruiting trees and fruiting shrubs uh, and perennial vegetables, kind of less common things um, as part of a system that, uh, that, you know, can work in lots of different sizes of area um, as a way to, uh, you know, to kind of create more balance that requires less tending once, once it gets established. Yeah, that's the main idea of it is that You know, the trees and shrubs will keep coming back, so you don't have to keep planting them, um, and they just get better over time. And we're doing a mini food forest because our yard is 0.15 acres, (laughs) and much of that is house. (laughs) Wow. Um, So we don't have a huge amount of space, but we found that we can do so much with it because we just, you know, 
take up as much space as we can with the plants. We have very little lawn at this point. Yeah. So t- just give us a little bit more sort of the, of the theoretical concept behind f- what a food forest, you mentioned it comes from the concept of permaculture. Uh, not not all of us know what that is. So a little more um, sort of just pedagogy here is needed sure. to bring us up to speed. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of looking at how um, a forest system works, right, in terms of how it supports the interconnectedness of a lot of different plants. Um, and, you know, uh, a key part of that is, is you know, the use of mycelium, of mushrooms, mycorrhizae, and things like that that are, uh, um, you know, are kind of helping to funnel nutrients around uh, from tree to tree and from, you know, from various plants, things like that. Um, and so this is not, this is not going to look like, uh, you know, a dense, natural kind of wooded area when it's done, but it's taking from that same concept of, uh, you know, using, planting things near each other that have different needs from the soil um, and, um, you know, and using this idea of, uh, you know, of, of basically the kind of permaculture idea of doing things with um, a lot of functions, right? So you, if you plant something, you're not just doing it just to harvest it, right? But then it also has maybe the function of providing a windbreak or the function of providing shade or something feeding like that. Bees. Feeding bees, right? Yeah. So um, feeding pollinators, especially. Um, and there's like this classic diagram of a food forest of like canopy tree, understory tree, vine going up the trees, uh, some herbaceous plants around it and then ground cover. So everything's covered and there are layers of everything. Um, and so you can just fit a lot of plants into that space as a forest fits a lot of plants into a forest. <laughs> you know, this is reminding me of uh, our old friend and guest many times on this show. I think his name was Nick Mancini. And you, you guys remember him? Yeah, he, from he, Westport, right? Uh, yeah, Saugatuck. He had... I, and I saw his uh, his he had this little triangle of uh, a space outside his house, which sort of mm-hmm. sat on it, kind of, kind of a you know triangular uh, piece of land. But it was it was you wouldn't you wouldn't have believed that he could grow the massive amounts of food he grew on that land. And he had, of course had incredible uh, amount of knowledge about how to get the most out of. Uh, like a tomato plant, he would say, well, I, I got 90, 90 pounds of tomatoes out of this, <laughs> this one sure. plant. And, you know, he did a lot of, a lot of things with um, grafting and, and spl- splicing and all kinds of techniques. But um, so I think and he had fruit trees also growing back there. He had all kinds of, you know, fruit, figs, pe- peaches. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm starting to realize now that what he had was a food forest, as you describe it. And, uh, yeah, well, so when we gave a presentation about this a couple months ago, uh, one of the, the best comments that we got uh, in response to, um, you know, just some of the questions that we posed to the audience and on a survey that we did afterwards was that, you know, there was at least one person who was already doing this without really knowing what it was called. Mm. Um, and I think that's kind of a cool thing, right, is that, you know, there's lots of things uh, along these lines that are just very different ways of looking at growing space. Um, that's not just garden beds. It's not just annual vegetables, right? Um, and, you know, you talked earlier, I think, Richard, about, um, you know, kind of uh, the idea of trying to get sort of, you know, using perennials, using native plants um, to, to sort of increase your production, get things closer to year-round as possible, you know, or as close to year-round as possible, Um and yeah, one of the things that you could do, even if you're not even interested in growing food for yourself, right, is just think about a succession of flowering plants so that at the very least, like the pollinators are fed from, you know, for as much of the growing season as possible. Uh, so we were really delighted to see, you know, things like asters and, you know, flowering to the end of the season and beyond really last year. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a cool way to get to know some of the native plants, Um uh, many of which are thought of as weeds, right, if you're taking a really traditional approach. And so these are things you might pull up from a garden bed. Um, but in this case, they have a function as well. So, To what extent uh, do you follow, uh, I guess, what they call no-till uh, process in, uh, in planting, trying not to expose any uh, soil to, uh, to the air? Yeah, we don't till at all. We do sort of layer layering um organic matter if we want to build a new bed um yeah, yeah we, we don't know. We, we brought in wood chips 
uh, I want to say probably close to two years ago now. Um, that was our, our first load of wood chips. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it, we just really like kind of just put them where we could. Um, and it was the first year that we'd moved in. And so I guess, yeah, one, one thing that we should mention, right, is that, um, you know, when you're doing this sort of thing, you do really want to uh, observe the space that you're in for a little while, kind of see how the wind goes, see how the rain falls, things like that. So it's not really something, you know, you can kind of move in and start doing immediately. But as part of learning, you know, a part of the process of learning how this works and kind of learning the land, learning the microclimate, things like that, um, you know, that's it's good to take a little time to just kind of watch and see, you know, what uh, what bugs there are, what plants are coming up on their own, um, you know, kind of uh, trying to trying to get a sense of that sort of thing. Um, and that really then gives you a lot of good ideas of how to plant. And then, of course, while we were doing that, we had a bunch of wood, chip, wood chips decomposing in our yard, which meant that the following spring we had a huge amount of mushrooms, which was uh, oh. you know, just really, really delightful. And uh, it was um, nice to, uh, you know, to see that there was some life in this yard, which, you know, it's a yard in a suburban neighborhood. So we know that there was a... Uh, um, you know, a certain amount of uh, chemical history prior to us moving there uh, here. So, you know, it was really nice to kind of see just the number of insects increase from year to year, right? Um, and just, you know, from like maybe 10 total the first summer that we were here to easily 90. Um, and, you know, we kind of lost count for sure, but lots of bees, lots of different uh, you know, kind of additional additional insects that we'd, I don't know, like I'm certainly not going to remember all the names, <laughs> but um, but that, you know, and that's just part of the the kind of, uh, you know, the joy of doing it, right, is was that then in this little place, right, this, you know, uh, 0.15 acre lot that we really had a sense of kind of what was going on, um, even though there are still lots of mysteries yet to be uh, uncovered. But Yeah, so how is your, um, well, I guess there are two questions here. How How is your garden evolving in terms of actual harvestable food um and then to what extent are you able to bring other people into this uh into this technique and this process uh such as your neighbors or i'm not sure what, you know what the demographic demographics of your neighborhood are but um is this something that you would try to uh put in you know into a community garden context uh, or, or people, you know, people, so I guess have their own little plots and they come or they contribute to the whole garden and they take their share. Um, but I'll, I'll leave it there with some questions. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, as you're getting it established, I mean, yeah, the end goal, right, is this sort of, uh, you know, less maintenance idea, which, you know, is then going to involve lots of the, uh, the quote-unquote weirder plants, but they're they're all still beautiful too, right? But uh, uh, you know, and the you know the kind of native plants and the less recognizable ones. But then, while you're getting it established, you can still grow annual vegetables, right? So, um, and so that's what we did last summer was we had you know a fair amount of leafy greens, we had some tomatoes, we had um, you know like quite a quite a a, a good harvest given uh, that we were not really doing you know organized garden beds. Um, and, uh, you know, we were doing, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't know. It was like, it was certainly a little bit chaotic. Um, but, uh, but there's, there's ways to, to produce food with it, even while you're getting the food forest established. Um, and so it doesn't have to be the, you know, the sort of thing where it's like a zero sum game where you have to plant and then wait for five years to harvest. Um, you know, some of the things will take longer. Right. And so we started out, um, in the spring of last year, putting in a couple of fruit trees. So we have a peach tree. Um, and then three kinds of apples in the back, uh, and yeah, the peach trees in the front. And then this year we are actually at the end of last year, we put in a pawpaw and a persimmon. Um, yeah, we yeah. did some fall planting of things cause I'm really bad at watering. <laughs> and if you plant in the spring, you have to water a lot. And if you plant in the fall, it sort of yeah, waters itself in over the winter. So fall planting is what we try and do around here. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the, couple, the, the, the perennial, uh, like, shrub, you know, we've got yeah. a dwarf cherry, we've got uh, um, uh, two honeyberries, and then this year we put in, uh, well, viburnums. Viburnums and a grape. Yeah, and a grape, fine. What was the, what was the hi, hibern, uh, viburnum? Viburnum, okay. Yeah. Is that, is that a fruit-bearing uh, shrub? 
It is. I've never had the fruit, but it's also native and some caterpillars eat exclusively those leaves. So that's the main reason I did it. And I'll be interested to try the fruit when it happens. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. So viburnum is like a, um, it kind of has like fuzzy leaves and a lot of dust, a lot of natural. Is that viburnum? I think there are a lot of I'm different not kinds. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. We're, we are looking at the, uh, you know, the very earliest stages of it right now. So, yeah. you know, it's still kind of just coming out of dormancy after we put it in about a week and a half ago. So it's, that's yeah. a, a brand new addition yeah. to the family. But. T- talk a little bit about the pawpaw, or as it's known in some parts of the, of the world, the p- papaya. Uh, a, oh. a friend of ours in, in Hamden, actually, who um, they, they have a garden, a very complex, very forced-like, as you describe it, garden. And, uh, it, but they don't have a lot of... Uh, food-producing plants there. But they okay. do have a pawpaw tree, which they've been getting fruit from. I was I was amazed, because I thought that was really purely a tropical plant. So talk a little bit about that. I would love to know. So it is, it is different than the papaya, although it is uh, texturally very similar. Like, uh, you know, I, I mean, that is, it is a native to this, to this area. Um, I first had it when I, I worked for Years, years and years ago, I worked at Edge of the Woods, and um, that was one of the things that they, they did was bring in, um, you know, kind of local produce whenever it was possible. Um, and that was my first exposure to it. And, yeah, I mean, it, it is like a little bit tropical in its, in its texture. You know, it's got this kind of creaminess and, um, you know, kind of like an avocado a little bit maybe or, yeah, a, kind of the texture um, of that somewhat. But um, but it's got this, this kind of, yeah, mellow sweetness to it. Um, uh, and, and what we, you know, I, and I, yeah, so I, we had been getting some, uh, let's see, during the last season from High Hill Orchard. Um, they had multiple, uh, kinds of them, uh, that they were selling at their farm stand. And so, yeah, it was just a, you know, an, another, another thing that we know, you know, is kind of can grow in Connecticut, um, in the soil, in this climate, um, and you know, that we've enjoyed eating a lot in the past. It's like, uh, it's, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of a unique, um, fruit, especially if you're comparing it to the standard store-bought fruits. So yeah, it's, it's surprising that you could get that kind of, I'm, it's a tropical plant, isn't it? Papayas are tropical. Uh, so uh, papaya, yes, uh, but uh, papa is. I don't believe it's related. Um, I may I may be wrong about that, but the the papa is like is something at least that that does. Uh, you know, maybe maybe it's been acclimated, but but it is um, kind of a, a more New England kind of traditional um, plant. So yeah, it's New England and South as well. So yeah, so it survives the winter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay, I, I stand corrected. I, I thought they were the same, paw paw and pinkish orange, when you when you cut it open. Um, I would say it's more yellowish. It mm-hmm. seems like kind of pale yellow. Um, sometimes I, mean, I guess some varieties we've had are a little darker yellow, but it tends to be more along the yellow lines. And it has these big, you know, probably like three to five of them per fruit, um, just like very smooth seeds. Um, they look kind of like buckeyes, I guess. Is that's my my best um, sort of impression of them anyway. But. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would like to maybe take us into a slightly different direction here and to talk about the intersection. Uh, I actually encountered your uh, presentation online on YouTube, on, uh, and it was, I think, the uh, topic or uh, the headline for it was, you know, racial and environmental justice, how, how they're linked together and sure. uh, how they lead to food insecurity for um, large portions of the population. So could you get into a little bit of that and uh, how your programs uh, in terms of food forests and community gardens and, and growing in urban settings uh, are part of this whole uh, question we're dealing with. Sure. Well, yeah. So you mentioned the um, the town of a thousand gardens uh, kind of project, and that's you know that's uh, at this moment that's like um, it's really just me kind of uh, coming up with uh, a lot of kind of like 
somewhat rambling ideas, but you know, I, I, I do have this this thought that um, you know, if you're looking at uh, you know a municipal situation or a town or a city or what have you, right? Like that, the most valuable resource that it has is the land that it's built on, um, and that's the one thing that won't change regardless of the economy changing. You know of you know, pandemics, hopefully there's not another one on the horizon, right? But, you know, just like that, that was one of the things that I really got to thinking about last year um, was when there was toilet paper shortages and canned bean shortages and all that sort of thing, right? That, um, you know, if if a town was even slightly more optimized to, um, you know, for self-sufficiency in that way, um, then you would see less of these effects of like, uh, you know, of, of uh, racial and class-based um, inequality, um, that that show up, you know, just when our food is only available through stores, through big stores and things like that. Um, and so, you know, in, in Hamden, uh, you know, a, a lot of neighborhoods, um, especially in southern Hamden, are sort of classified as food for, uh, sorry, food deserts. That's the opposite. Um, so then, you know, to, for something to be a food desert, it means that there is no fresh produce available within, uh, you know, kind of within convenient distance, right? You either have to get on a bus to go to a supermarket. Um, there's no small markets that are selling produce, things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and naturally, yeah, that's the thing that, uh, you know, kind of shows up in the health of people and then shows up in, um, you know, in a lot of, uh, a lot of ways that sort of contribute to this long-term sort of inequity that, um, you know, that, that, you know, you, you could spend hours talking about, right? Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, like, along, you know, this the same lines, right, and, you know, that when we're thinking about this, this idea of kind of building, um, you know, self-sufficiency and food security and things like that, um, you know, I think that, that one of the easiest ways to, uh, to go with that is to, is to kind of understand how food is produced. Um, and I think that, you know, when you get into this conversation, you know, you get a lot of people discouraging you like, oh, you should only do it when it's a farm situation or, you know, you should only do it when you have like 10 acres or more. Um, and, you know, our, our goal with doing these kinds of things is not to grow all of our own food. Right. Um, but it is to to get a better understanding and appreciation of that and that we can contribute a fair amount to our to our household's food supply um, by learning how to do this sort of thing. Um, and so with Town of a Thousand Gardens, you know, the idea was that we're, you know, we're in Hamden um, and uh, the the town is, uh, you know, hurting a little bit financially. Uh, it's probably no secret, right? But, um, you know, what we are kind of trying to trying to deal with and uh, is the fact that, you know, there's, there's a lot of um, big ideas that people have and there's not enough money to pay for them. Um, and, you know, when we're dealing with things with the way they are, right, that's the first question that you have, that people have, um, is like, you know, who's going to pay for it? How are you going to pay for it? That sort of thing. Um, and learning how to do this sort of thing, it doesn't have to be, you know, a huge, I just, uh, like, upfront cost, right? Um, I, I got to break in here because we're literally sure. down to our last uh, 35 seconds. So oh <laughs> we have so much more to talk about. I think we should try to maybe have you come back and, and get a little deeper into this. I want to thank Eliza Caldwell and Adam Matlock for joining, uh, for joining us from from uh, Hamden and New Haven, respectively. And uh, I want to thank Guy Beardsley and Chris Ferriero. Thank you. And uh, it's been an interesting day, and uh, we expect some better weather, co weather coming. So thanks for joining us for the Organic Farm Stand, and uh, we shall talk to you all soon. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Corn in the fields, listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water.